and welcome. Yes, it's myself again. You're wondering where I've been getting to. Don't worry. I am alive and fabulously healthy, as I hope you are too. This news, of course, is brought to you in partnership with the Stone Pages website and British Archaeological Jobs and Resources, that's me, and Past Horizons Archaeology. All the stories have been collected from various sources, and to view details on each story, including the source, you're going to have to go to the Stone Pages website at news.stonepages.com. Well, what have we got for you? Well, what haven't we got? We've got geoglyphs from Kazakhstan. Um, this first came up at the EAA, that's the European Association of Archaeologists Conference in Istanbul, or is it Constantinople? Then we've got a 43,000-year-old modern human settlement in Central Europe. We've got an, an Iron Age bowl, this one in Iran, telling a grisly tale. Fabulous story, in fact. And the earliest signs of human habitation in Canada. Or is it? Well, all to be played for. A Chinese boy, believe it or not, discovers a bronze sword that's 3,000 years old in a river. And staying on the martial theme, we've got 3,900-year-old bone armour being unearthed in Russia. For those of you that know your Game of Thrones, well... We found evidence of the king beyond the wall. Underground scans have been showing 17 new sites and revolutionised our understanding of the Stonehenge landscape. Yes, you guessed it, it's Stonehenge story of the week. And we have, sticking with large stone objects, a massive 5,000-year-old stone monument being discovered in Israel. Neolithic necropolis unearthed in northern France and an ancient boat and a settlement have been found off Denmark's coast. There's probable pre-Clovis artefacts being found in canvas and, well, it's another one of these classics, modern man is now not responsible for the decline of Neanderthals. Archaeologists discover a Bronze Age wine cellar in Israel and you'll see uh, how many vintages they actually had. And finally... Kennewick man looked a little bit Polynesian and came from far, far away. What a fabulous uh, story to end on. Don't worry, it gets better. So where were we? Oh yes, the geoglyphs of Kazakhstan. It was a shame I didn't manage to get along to the uh, EAA conference in Istanbul this year. Um, really enjoyed previous one. I was at and you'll see me at uh, next year 2015 which is going to be in Glasgow so if you're an archaeologist and looking for something to do in 2015 well EAA in Glasgow you might even find me excavating outside the actual conference hall itself anyway back to Kazakhstan where more than 50 geoglyphs of various shapes and sizes have been discovered across northern Kazakhstan in Central Asia the sprawling structures created by earthen mounds and banks create a landscape of ritual art, just like that seen at Nazca and other regions where geoglyphs are found. Discovered using good old Google Earth, the geoglyphs are designed in a variety of geometric shapes, including squares, rings and crosses, ranging from 90 to 400 metres across. Over the past year, though, an archaeological expedition from Kazakhstan's Kostani University, working in collaboration with Vilnius University in Lithuania, has been examining them. The team, which is conducting excavations, ground-penetrating radar surveys, aerial photography and dating, recently presented these results at the European Association of Archaeologists meeting. Archaeological excavations uncovered the remains of structures and hearths at the geoglyphs, suggesting that rituals took place there. Tribes may have also used the geoglyphs to mark ownership of the land. 
While Peru's Nazca lines are world famous, archaeological research suggests that geoglyphs were constructed in numerous areas around the globe by different cultures at different times. So no need for aliens, thank you very much. In the Middle East, archaeologists found thousands of wheel-shaped structures that are easily visible from the sky, but very hard to see on the ground. Believe me, they're not wrong. I've walked over several of them myself. Also recently, in Russia, archaeologists excavated a geoglyph shaped like an elk. Ancient geoglyphs have been reported in many other countries, including United Kingdom, Brazil, Southwest United States. The introduction of high-resolution Google Earth imagery over the last decade has helped both professional archaeologists and the fabulous amateur to detect and study these enigmatic structures. But you can't get away from the fact that you're going to have to go out there and actually have a look. In 1908, the famous Venus of Willendorf was discovered during an excavation near the Austrian town of Melk. The statuette has been dated to 30,000 years ago and is one of the world's earliest examples of figurative art. Now a team of archaeologists has dated a number of stone tools recently excavated from the same site to 43,500 years ago and identified the tools as belonging to the Aurignacian culture, making them significantly older than other known Aurignacian artefacts which have been found all over Europe. It's agreed that modern humans dispersed into Europe and began to replace Neanderthals at least 40,000 years ago. The new research pushes this date back to a time when temperatures north of the Alps were still cool. Recent finds at the Willendorf site contribute valuable new information to the debate about modern human colonisation of Europe. The remarkably early date of the find shows that modern humans and Neanderthals overlapped for much longer than we thought and that modern humans coped well with a variety of climates. The date of the artefacts represents the oldest well-documented occurrence of modern humans in Europe. The tools, including small bladelets, which were originally part of composite tools, may have been used as projectile points. The picture emerging from the study is fascinating as we see significant changes in the material culture of the last Neanderthals. And these changes occur at the same time that modern humans were present at Willendorf. The timing of these events cannot be a coincidence. In 1958, archaeologists digging through the ruins of Hassan Lu, a burned Iron Age citadel in northwest Iran, pulled a spectacular though crushed golden bowl from the layers of destruction. The bowl was just beyond the fingertips of a dead soldier and two of his comrades who were buried underneath piles of bricks and burned building material. This all happened around about 800 BCE. It's like something out of a film. Located on the shores of Lake Orome, Hassan Lu seems to have been first occupied about 8,000 years ago. But by the 9th or 10th centuries BCE, there was a bustling fortified town at the site. Within the walls were houses, treasuries, stables, even military arsenals and temples, many of which had towers or multiple storeys. The buildings were mud brick, but roofs, floors and structural supports consisted of timber and reed matting. The burnt lair at Hassanlu contained more than 200 bodies preserved in ash and rubble, suggesting that an attack had destroyed the citadel. Archaeologists who excavated the site in the 1950s to the 1970s found that many of the bodies had been beheaded and others were missing hands. Archaeologists do not know yet the ethnicity of the people who lived there or what language they spoke, but many of the victims were women and children. In mass graves on top of the burned lair, excavators found the remains of many people, many young and old, who seemed to have suffered fatal 
blunt force trauma, head wounds. The site was primarily excavated between 1956 and 1977, and because of security pressures and the overwhelming amount of material found, the work was often, sadly, hurried. Some artefacts, such as the Golden Bowl, were pulled from the ground before they were properly documented or photographed. Historical texts indicate the ancient Uratu kingdom, which grew out of an area in modern-day Turkey, was expanding into the region around Hasanlu during the Iron Age through a brutal military campaign. Sometime after the citadel was abandoned, an Uratian fortification was built on top of the ruins. It's these moments in time from archaeology, that archaeology can actually tell us about, that really takes you back into the past to that, that moment you can smell the, the place on fire and you can actually see the horrors that are happening. It wasn't all love and peace in the past, but it makes us perhaps understand a little bit more who and what we are. Anyway, on that lovely note, we'll head back to Canada, where researchers using a robotic submarine of British Columbia's northern coast believe they have found the earliest evidence of human habitation in Canada. The site, which could date back almost 14,000 years, lies beneath hundreds of metres of water in the ocean around the Haidai archipelago, south of Ketchikan, uh, I've said that horribly wrong, Ketchikan in Alaska. Archaeologist Quentin Mackay from the University of Victoria has studied the area for the past 15 years and believes ancient residents would have harvested salmon near the coast of what was then a single island that stretched well across the strait towards the mainland. At the time, the sea level was about 100 metres lower than it is today and the main island twice as large. He and his team have used an autonomous underwater vehicle to scan 25 kilometres of what were once riverbeds. Mackie is hopeful the images show at least one stone weir or fish trap, a man-made channel used to corral fish. The scan suggests a wall of large stones in a line at a right angle to the stream, a fishing technique which is still used but was often used by many ancient cultures. Based on radiocarbon dating from another site on the island, the weir could date back to 13,800 years ago. A geologist will now study the images to ensure the rocks are not just natural formation. Then the team will return next summer to take samples of the sediments near the site and look for evidence of stone tools. Now we're heading east or west, depending upon your uh, perspective. An 11-year-old, I'll try again, an 11-year-old boy discovered this, a sword in July while playing near the Laojulin River northwest of Shanghai. While washing his hands in the river, he touched the tip of something hard and fished out, believe it or not, a metal sword. He took it home and gave it to his father, who immediately sent it to the Cultural Relics Bureau. I wish I could be a member of something like that. It sounds quite exciting. Initial identification found the sword could date back 3,000 years to the time of the Shang or the Zhu dynasties. The short sword was seen as a status symbol for a civil official, both decorative and, of course, practical, but it is not the type of sword used by military officers. What a fabulous find. And an even more fabulous find. I find this one particularly amazing. Archaeologists are intrigued by the discovery of a complete set of well-preserved bone armour buried separately from its owner. Analysis is expected to determine its exact age, but Siberian archaeologists say it dates from between 3,900 to 3,500 years ago. 
No other examples of such a battle dress have ever been found around Omsk, which is just north of Kazakhstan in south-central Russia. Nearby archaeological finds are from the Krotov culture, the people who lived in the forest steppe area of western Siberia, but this bone armour more closely resembles that of the Samos Semimanskaya culture which originally came from an area of the Altai Mountains some a thousand kilometres to the southeast and migrated into this area. Whilst there's no indication that the place of discovery of the armour was a place of worship, it is likely. Armour like this has a great material value and it makes absolutely no sense to bury it in the ground or hide it because the actual fixings and the bones would be ruined. Such armour needs constant care. The team also hoped to reconstruct an exact copy of it as well. Uh, this would give good protection from weapons used at the time, of course, bone and stone arrowheads, bronze knives, spears tipped with bronze, and even bronze axes. The archaeological site where the armour was found includes settlements, burial grounds, and manufacturing sites from a variety of periods from the early Neolithic to the Middle Ages. But I bet you this is their favourite find. Now... Putting on my best Stonehenge voice, it's our Stonehenge story. Archaeologists have unveiled the most detailed map ever produced of the earth beneath the Stonehenge landscape. They combine different instruments. I wish they'd stop calling it the Stonehenge. Stonehenge is only a small part. Anyway, let's move on. Let's move on. They combine different instruments to scan the area to a depth of three metres with unprecedented resolution. Early results suggest the iconic monument did not stand alone, but was accompanied by 17 neighbouring sites. Among the surprises yielded by the research are traces of up to 60 huge stones or pillars which form part of a 1.5 kilometre wide superhenge previously identified near Durrington Walls. The team's three-dimensional map, which covers an area of 12 square kilometres, was created using six different techniques to scan the whole site at different depths. Among the instruments they used were magnetometers, ground-penetrating radar, and a 3D laser scanner. Under one of the numerous mounds, they identified a 33-metre-long timber building, about 6,000 years old, probably used for ritual burials and related practices, including excarnation. Professor Wolfgang Neubauer, director of the Ludwig Boltzmann Institute, which was also involved in the research, he explains that the building has three rows of roof rows of roof bearing posts, so around about three hundred square meters and slightly trapezoidal, which is interesting because in the same period on the continent, about a hundred two hundred years earlier, you're also finding the same type of trapezoidal building related to megaliths, also related to both where people are living but also houses for the dead. A first inspection of the Cursus and the Durrington Walls, located north and northeast of Stonehenge, also revealed new insights. The work unveiled two additional pits inside the prehistoric Cursus, which is aligned itself east-west direction, and the pits were found one at each end pointing to the dusk and the dawn at equinox. This particular alignment is closely related to the position and orientation of Stonehenge, which was built, as we know, some three to five hundred years later. The large separation in time indicates that both monuments were not conceived or planned as a whole. The structures guide the builders. Once you have one thing in place, other things happen because the other ones already exist, explains Professor Gaffney. I think I understand what he means. All of these preliminary findings reflect the complexity of the landscape history and the depth of evolution. 
which will slowly be uncovered once the researchers start the full analysis of the data. A crescent-shaped stone monument that dates back 5,000 years has been identified in Israel. Located about 13 kilometres northwest of the Sea of Galilee, the structure is massive, about 14,000 cubic metres of stone, 150 metres long and up to 7 metres high. Pottery excavated at the structure indicates the monument dates to between 3050 BCE and 2650 BCE. Archaeologists previously thought the structure was actually part of a town wall, but recent work carried out by Ido Wachtel, a doctoral student at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, indicates there is actually no settlement, and the structure is a complete standing monument in itself. An ancient town called Bet Yara, which translates to the House of the Moon God, is located only a day's walk from the crescent-shaped monument. Another stone monument, a giant cairn, was discovered recently, I think you'll remember this, beneath the waters of the Sea of Galilee. Its date is unknown, but it's like the crescent-shaped monument that we were talking about just now, is, believe it or not, located close to Bet Yara. I wonder what we'll make of that. A team of archaeologists is currently conducting excavation work on 20 hectares of land earmarked for residential development in Fleury-sur-Orne in northwestern France, and they've revealed an important Middle Neolithic necropolis, dating from around about 4,500 BCE, containing 20 monuments and many intact burials. During the Middle Neolithic, new types of monuments were appearing, constructions of earth and wood varying in length from a few dozen to several hundred metres. These monumental tombs, the first of their kind, are called Passé, named after the type site found in Burgundy. These large, elongated structures are bounded by ditches, which may be associated with fences and a mound in tombs the deceased. In a break with past traditions, these large monuments suggest that a type of hierarchy has now been introduced into the society. At Fleury-sur-Orne, 20 of these monumental tombs have been identified by archaeologists, their size varies from 12 metres to 300 metres in length, enclosed by ditches, some of them up to 15 metres wide. One of the tombs at Fleury was exceptionally well preserved and features from the original construction walls of stacked grass turves show that it would have been built up to at least 2 metres in height. Each construction was designed to house a few burials, but often there was only one. The burial mounds are large, 3.5 to 4 metres long, and contain a male individual along with a number of arrow tips. Whole sheep also were interred, and in one, seven sheep were accompanying the deceased. Contemporaneous with the large dolmens appearing on the shores of the Atlantic, these monumental tombs show considerable energy to benefit the few and appear to signal the emergence of a social hierarchy which can be fully expressed in later centuries. Now, diving beneath the murky waters off the coast of Denmark, archaeologists are currently recovering and examining what is considered the oldest boat ever found in Denmark. The ancient 6-7 to metre long vessel is estimated to be 6,500 years old, and although damaged, archaeologists found it to be incredibly interesting. The best find for them so far is a split that has been fixed by a 2mm wide bark strip sealed with pieces of resin that have been chewed to make them soft and flexible. The historic find was made when the energy company uh, SEAS NVE was replacing sea cables by the Ask Island in the northern, sorry, in the southern part of Zealand. 
In connection with the boat find, archaeologists also found an entire submerged Stone Age settlement that they are also investigating. The archaeologists hope to find more organic materials such as wood, bone and antler, which will be preserved underwater. Meanwhile, the underwater settlement can help map the coastline from thousands of years ago. The central Great Plains is a semi-arid eco-region of North America, covering large parts of Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas and Nebraska. A team from the University of Kansas, led by Professor Rolf Mandel, has been excavating an area of canvas within this zone to try and find evidence of settlements by Clovis and even pre-Clovis people. The excavations are part of a project run by the university to give their undergraduates and graduates field experience. The team has concentrated its efforts in an area known as Tuttle Creek, and several artefacts have been discovered, including projectiles and drills. The team is currently awaiting the results of their analysis of the sediment the artefacts were buried in. They're hoping that the official result will confirm their belief that these artefacts are older than 13,500 years, which would make them the earliest finds so far in the central Great Plains area. The sediment test uses a technique which tries to determine when the layer was last exposed to light. Optically stimulated luminescence, if you would like to know. Professor Mandel is quite excited by this. It will tell us a lot about the history of the peopling of the Americas, and in particular the peopling of the Great Plains, where they're pretty much a black hole in terms of unravelling that particular story. Well, good luck to them there. Now it seems that uh, we're off the hook again. We're no longer responsible for the demise of the Neanderthal. The story of the interaction and interbreeding of modern man and Neanderthals is an ever-changing one. As analytical techniques become more sophisticated and accurate, then the picture becomes clearer. The latest technique to be applied uses ultra-filtering of samples to eliminate any form of contamination, thus making the subsequent analysis more accurate. Using this technique on analysis of samples of bone and charcoal from several Russian sites seems to shift the evidence to show that Neanderthals were actually starting to die out before they interacted with modern humans who was not, therefore, on this evidence, the cause of their extinction. It didn't help them along, of course. The decline started between 41 to 39,000 years ago, with modern man appearing on the scene in this area only 35,000 years ago. There was an overlapping period of two and a bit thousand years when both species coexisted and interbred. So I hope to widen the research to Eastern Europe and Eurasia to corroborate these findings. But of course, remember that uh, earlier piece about the Willendorf where it looks like um, early modern humans are getting there, well, at least into the uh, Eastern Europe and uh, Northern Europe about 43,000 years ago. So I think there's still a lot to play on this one. Now, raise a glass to the ancient Canaanites. In 2013, you might remember, while excavating within the palace ruins of Tel Kabri, a 30-hectare ancient Canaanite city site in northern Israel, dating to around about 1700 BC, archaeologists uncovered a metre-long jar, which they dubbed Bessie. Suddenly, Bessie had friends. Forty jars packed in a five-by-eight-metre storage room, the jars, each of which could have held 50 litres, were the equivalent of nearly 3,000 bottles of wine, making this one of the largest ancient wine cellars in the world. The cellar was located near a hall where banquets would have taken place. Handy. The cellar and hall were destroyed during the same violent event, uh, which is suspected to have been an earthquake, which covered them in a thick layer of mudbrick and plaster. 
The jars held traces, however, of tartaric and syringic acid, both key components in wine, as well as other compounds suggesting the presence of ingredients popular in ancient winemaking, including honey, and mint, cinnamon bark, juniper berries and resins. The recipes, in fact, were very similar to medicinal wines used for 2,000 years and recorded in ancient Egypt. Now, further analysis confirms that all of the jars contained chemical compounds indicative of wine. Researchers detected subtle differences in the ingredients or additives, including honey, storax resin, terebrinth resin, cedar oil, cypress, juniper, and possibly mint, myrtle, and cinnamon. This suggests that humans at the time had sophisticated understanding of plants and the skills necessary to produce a complex alcoholic beverage, balancing preservation, palatability, and, of course psychoactivity. Wine production, distribution and consumption played a role in the lives of those in the Mediterranean Near East during the Middle Bronze Age between 1900 to 1600 BCE, but until now little archaeological evidence was available to support ancient depictions and documentation. If you actually do think back about it, there is quite a lot of wine quaffed in the past. Now, Kennewick Man, it's a uh, our last story, and a, a very interesting one as well. Kennewick Man died 9,000 years ago in the Columbia River Valley of northwestern North America. Uh, he was a seal hunter who had rambled far and wide with a projectile point lodged in his hip, five broken ribs that never healed properly, and two small dents in his skull. He also had a bad shoulder from throwing too many spears. He came from somewhere far up in the Pacific Northwest, possibly Alaska or the Aleutian Islands. He might even have come all the way from Asia. This is the conclusion of the editors of a 688-page peer-reviewed book, Kennewick Man, The Scientific Investigation of an Ancient American Skeleton. It's going to be published. It should be around about now, in fact. He would have been an Asian, explained co-editor Richard Yance, Emeritus Professor of Anthropology at the University of Tennessee. One of the things we always tend to do is underestimate the mobility of early people. His co-editor, Douglas Owsley, a forensic anthropologist at the Smithsonian Institute's National Museum of Natural History, agrees with the assessment of Kennewick Mann. He was a long-distance traveller. The book, which includes contributions from more than five dozen authors, researchers and photographers, describes the many kinds of research that had taken place on the skeleton which was discovered in 1996. And of course, we all know about the controversy that then followed. The chemical analysis, however, of the molecular isotopes in the bones and the clues that they provide to Kennewick Man's origin suggests he lived off a diet of seals and other large marine mammals and drank glacier meltwater. His wide-set body is akin to that generally seen to cold-adapted human populations. Kennewick Man's skull is large and narrow with a projecting face and doesn't look like the skulls of the later Native Americans. Its dimensions more closely match those of what we would now call modern-day Polynesians. According to scientists Kennewick Man and today's Polynesians, as well as the prehistoric Jomon and the contemporary Ainu of northern Japan, all have a common ancestry amongst the coastal Asian population. Genetic evidence points to a common ancestry among Native Americans to a population that remained isolated for a long period of time in the now-drowned land known as Beringia, and that then migrated, possibly in several pulses, after the ice sheets began to recede. So what we're getting now is a far more nuanced 
understanding of the peopling of the Americas. One thing is clear, however. Kennewick Man did not, I repeat, did not come from France. Now, while he's not coming from France, I am heading off to Lithuania where I do get a chance to... Uh, it's a little dream I've had for, blimey, nearly 30 years now. Uh, heading off to Vilnius where I'm going to enjoy myself for a few days uh, with uh, Maggie. And so, without further ado, I will leave you just now and tell you that there's going to be some exciting news when I return. Anyway, can I remind you that many new archaeological and heritage employment opportunities, as well as a library guidance section, etc., can be found on Badger. That's www.bajr.org. Uh, there's more, of course, can be found at Past Horizons PR. Com. And what about Stone Pages? How can you not go to news.stonepages.com and find out what's happening in the prehistoric world? Thank you for listening to this archaeology news, and we hope you'll be returning to listen to what's coming up in the fabulous podcast 450. Mm-hmm.